When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Every investor in the world wants to catch the wave of the next big trade. There's no time machine to go back and buy Amazon in 2013 or Apple in 2009. But what we can do is talk to the world's best traders about their next big buy. Join me, Harry Melandry of MI2 Partners, as we do exactly that on The Next Big Trade. Amateurs look to the right of the equal sign. Pros look to the left. So I would encourage everybody to not look at the small sample of this year, which has been unequivocally bizarre, and always look to one's process, not necessarily to their outcome, because sometimes, oftentimes, the outcome is not fully in one's control in a small sample. Welcome to the next big trade, and thanks for joining us. This week, I'm speaking to Michael Guyard. Um, Michael is a portfolio manager at Tidal Financial Group and is a publisher of the Lead, Lead Lag Report. Michael, a pleasure to meet you. How are you? Uh, depends on the day, but I, I guess today I'm doing okay. So what have you been thinking about recent the recent rally in risk markets and fixed income and everything that's happening? For me, I was puzzled and, what can I say, slightly slightly uncomfortable because um, I was pressing on the bear, to, bear side. But, you know, sometimes you get them wrong. Um what are you thinking about everything? Yeah, I, I use that line often on Twitter that bear markets make fools of bulls and bears. Uh, I think that probably best accurately describes a lot of the action this year. But um, so a couple of things. The um, just to set the stage as far as where we've been, where we are. Uh, I was pretty public back in March saying that this year was hell. And I was saying that because I could clearly see the treasuries back then, what is traditionally the risk-off asset, were not acting the way they historically do in periods of heightened stock market volatility, meaning treasuries were acting more volatile than stocks, right? So when your risk-off asset is acting worse than your risk-on asset, that's hell. Um, Mid-June started arguing you're probably going to have a move higher in equities, then early August said every W needs a V, um, V formation, which is what preceded it. And then October 2nd started making the case that conditions were favoring a melt-up in risk assets. And so far, that seems to have been largely correct. We'll see, given what may be some contagion in the cryptocurrency space that could spill over into U.S. markets. But, you know, this has been a really nuanced year from a lot of perspectives. I know a lot of people will say, it was obvious that stocks and bonds would both lose money. But I keep going back to this point that saying something happens is different than identifying how it happens. Not only have treasuries acted worse than equities this year in a major drawdown for stocks, but also even the way that stocks fell this year is historically abnormal. I've used that stat a few times. You look at the number of weeks that the S&P 500 has lost money as a percentage of the year this year. You're at around 63% of the year, stocks have been in the red using weekly intervals. The only other time that happened was 1931. So we've had a lot of very bizarre dynamics. 
And I don't think that the bear market is going to be over for a while. I think the the anomalies are probably due to finally go away, right? Which we'll talk about. But uh, yeah, this has been a a brutal year. I don't know if that many people realize just how weird it has been. I think all the guys who run risk parity funds, they know. Because I was just looking at some of the, the risk parity numbers, and it, it, it's been fascinating. If you do a scatter plot, equity annual returns versus bond annual returns, this year is a massive outlier to the lower left quadrant. Uh, it's like it's a, like a negative 20% year in equities when this print was taken. That's a Bloomberg number I took. But uh, it's a ne- it's almost a negative thirty. It's like a negative twenty seven percent year for fixed income, and that you know that the whole point is that that can't happen that often. Otherwise, we wouldn't have risk parity funds. <laughs> we wouldn't we wouldn't have Ray, Ray Dalio would not be a billionaire. Um, so this is really unusual, and uh, I guess you've got to ask yourself whether we got another one of these coming. Because if we do, a whole bunch of business models will die. Right? It, it, none none of this stuff will work. Okay, so a couple of things. So the same dynamic that dramatically impacted the risk parity, which is the failure of treasuries to act counter to stock market risk, is the same hell I've been referring to, right? Which relates very much to my own fund. So I run I'm the PM of three funds, ATAX, a mutual fund, Roro, and Jojo. They all use different signals. They're all inherently risk on, risk off in their nature, meaning they're using leading indicators to identify conditions that favor higher or lower volatility in stocks. But they have one thing in commonality, which is that they all rely on long-duration treasuries to act as the safe haven. So here I am, a portfolio manager running quant rules-based strategies, and the bulk of the year, my funds are in treasuries using different signals, but the bulk of the year, they keep on going through a nasty drawdown because treasuries have been the the pain point. I made that point before. The, the Treasuries historically are the beneficiary of stock market volatility. This time they've been the source of it, and people can attack the concept of risk on risk off or can attack the concept of risk parity. All this stuff is very well researched. So we are clearly in, a, in in an anomaly. I don't think that's that's that cannot be debated. And there is a massive dislocation that's gone on in the bond market. Um, keep in mind, this is like one of those weird years where conservative has done worse than aggressive. And you can see that by looking at credit quality in the bond market, right? You look at AAA bonds, you look at triple B bonds. A lot of them are, you know, from a fund perspective, at least, ex-dividend are trading below their COVID crash levels, whereas junk debt is trading above its COVID crash levels. I mean, it, it, everything has, has, has really acted backwards. Now, to your point, the question is, can it continue? Uh, it, I'm biased because I want to see it not continue because I need to have that inverse correlation kick sure. in. Um, but but I, I suspect that what people are forgetting is that now you've got room to make money being risk off again because yields are so much higher when it comes to treasuries. So it seems plausible to me that that flight to safety trade does come back, that we just had an enormous multi-standard deviation anomaly, um, which you'll always have in any data set, right? But Now, at least, there's room, right? And if there's room, that's actually hopeful because even if the bear market isn't over, now there might be places one can actually hide in. You know, I think a lot of it will pivot around the inflation question. Um, Luckily, right now, everybody's decided that 
inflation is probably coming down. Um, but it was inflation that took the Fed out of the game. I mean, what would normally happen if you, you have a portfolio of, of bonds and stocks is when the stocks do badly, everyone anticipates the Fed's going to cut rates and then the bonds do well. This time around, that couldn't happen because inflation was 9% or, you know, 8.5%, depending on which country you're in. Um, so that took the Fed out. Fed puts are no longer valid. And all of a sudden, people are losing money everywhere they look. Um, I would say we have to be reminded that just before that event, we did get given 25% on pretty much every asset under the sun because the Fed drove it all up. So, you know, the Fed giveth and the Fed taketh away to some degree. Um, but we should, I mean, it's, I mean, I'm enjoying the conversation, but we have a conceit to follow. And the conceit is we're going to talk about the next big trade. So talk us through your investment thesis. Okay. And it's all related to exactly your point you just mentioned around the Fed giveth. I mean, what the Fed really uh, gave the last arguably decade is an environment that only favored a select group of mega cap stocks. Okay. So, and I've, I've written about this before, and I think this is something which also a lot of people don't really fully appreciate. Quantitative easing three, 2012, 2013 was the start of a lot of breakages from an intermarket analysis perspective where you ended up really seeing S&P 500, large cap, especially mega cap tech names, really run away from everything else. You look at small caps relative to large caps. That's when small caps started to roll over, meaning underperform large cap uh, equities. You look at international versus U.S. You look at emerging markets versus U.S. in particular. Everything really um, broke in terms of co-movements relative to the S&P when you went full on zero interest rate policy, right? Which favored, you know, the tech names, which is where the large cap indices are primarily heavily weighted. Now that dynamic is done. You never know. Maybe we do go back to ZERP. Um, but if that dynamic is done, one has to entertain the possibility that we're in a new cycle that maybe does not favor large caps only as the place to be this sort of, environment where that's the dominating part to invest in, right? And, and that had a lot of really important implications because, listen, if you're playing risk on and you're trying to play momentum, if you played momentum anywhere outside of large caps, you probably got whipsawed a lot, right? Because you didn't really have persistent momentum in relative strength in small caps and certainly not in international. Now rates are higher. Maybe now the dynamic breaks. That makes it a lot easier to beat the S&P then from a portfolio management perspective, right? It's, it's very hard to beat the S&P when the S&P is the only game in town. And if the reason the S&P was the only game in town was because of ZERP and you no longer have that, that actually could be pretty good, right, for active allocators conceivably. Uh, so you like small caps, which, you know, to my mind, the whole small cap thing is so problematic for me as a retail investor. Um so for one, I don't know how to pick stocks. I'm a bond guy, right? Bond guys don't know how to pick stocks. And I, I, I do try occasionally. You don't want to see the results. Um, I do try. Um, and then secondly, that the, uh, the, these things are expensive to trade, right? Um, so even if I could pick small caps, which I really can't, like you got to know your limits and, 
I'm not an athlete and I'm not a good stock picker. Um, and then secondly, even if I was a good stock picker, it's expensive to pick small cap stocks and it's such a big universe. How the hell do you implement that trade? Well, I think a couple of things. The, um, obviously you can go broad based, but the problem is, as you know, you have a lot of these so-called zombie companies, right? In the small cap averages, which, you know, there's going to be a risk at some point from these higher rates in terms of their ability to even survive. So there's a, I think there's a legitimate concern there uh, when it comes to broad-based small cap allocations. Um, but I think emerging markets could actually be really interesting after a decade of nothingness too, right? So I do think it's amazing how emerging markets have actually not uh, utterly collapsed into crisis mode in a year like this year. Instead, it was actually the UK, right? They got into crisis mode right i i I like to think of the uk as an emerging market there's 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 all sorts of emerging market characteristics you can make the same case about the us maybe (laughs) at some point give it it another hundred years but go on right exactly not our lifetimes i think is the point right so but my point is like you know if you take a step back it's like that's actually kind of encouraging i think to see that emerging markets ended up being somewhat you can argue safer in quotes than developed, at least for now, right? Who knows? Well, this is always subject to change. But I see that, and I, I do believe in mean reversion as a constant in life and in markets. You had you know, seven years, well, more than seven years of famine when it came to emerging markets. Maybe you're going to have seven years of feast. And a lot of people will say, well, you know, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, emerging markets are saddled with debt. Okay, that's fine. But if you have a commodity cycle, which I'm on board with, Right from a multi-year perspective, yeah, maybe emerging markets end up being a place where there could be some flow of funds. Um, I think in that case, you probably do go broad with some of these country-based ETFs or even broad-based ETFs. But the the broader point here is that if if we're entering a cycle that no longer favors large caps, it's going to be a lot more of an interesting and fun investing environment in the context of still a lot of volatility, by the way, right? which is an important part of also not not having zero interest rate policy, but. Um, the implications will be important here because oftentimes you don't realize if a cycle has changed until two to three years after it's already changed. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. When I think about this, um, like one of the reasons why it's easy to believe that we could have a much better environment for small caps is they've had the stuffing knocked out of them. They're cheap, right? If stuff that's gone down is cheap, small caps are cheap. And the same is kind of true for emerging markets. Um, I own a lot of Argentinian debt, uh, some corporate, some sovereign. I wouldn't recommend that for people at home. It's like, you know, don't, don't parasend and don't buy Argentinian sovereign debt. But, um, uh, it has, it's been a rough trade. I've lost money. Absolutely candid. I like the trade still. And I like the trade because stuff yields 14, 15, 16%. Actually, a lot of stuff yields 30%, but I'm looking at the current yield because I assume it all gets restructured again. And it's, I think that's cheap. And I think that will roll up over 10 years. And if I don't get restructured three times more, then I'm going to make money. So, something along those lines. Uh, small caps, it's trickier. 
Um, small caps, you're absolutely right. We've had this huge appreciation in large cap S&P. This stuff's super expensive in all sorts of ways and has a lot of debt. If that debt doesn't, if the Fed doesn't end up cutting rates in a prompt fashion, we have a serious refinancing problem for the big companies. The same thing that made them fly, which is superior access to uh, capital, cheap access to capital via the Fed, via banks, and the small caps suffer because they didn't have that access is going to be the thing that makes makes the whole trade reverse. Once once something gets so expensive, it's really hard to make it perform. So all of that makes me sympathetic to you. The concern I've got is that, you know, if we have a tough economic environment, we could have something approaching an extinction event for a lot of smaller companies. And it, it isn't clear... Yet the coast is not clear, right? It's not something where I think, oh yeah, it's n- that's not going to happen. It might still happen, especially in Europe. Yeah, no, no, you're, you're, and this is a question of sort of timeframes and sequence of returns, right? So, first of all, if you look at the Russell 2000 divided by the S and P, that ratio of Russell 2000 small caps divided by the S and P, you're at 1987 levels. I mean, you've gone a round trip, meaning that if you invested in 1987, 1988 in small caps. Uh, remember that whole small cap premium effect? That that whole idea that there's less analyst coverage, there should be better momentum there. It's, there's more alpha. They should be cheap. No different. Yeah, yeah. They should be. Yeah, right. No, so right. So so and there's cycles in this stuff. So what you're hitting on though is is you know it's the difference between relative versus absolute, right? So assuming the bear market is not over, which is what I myself am of the mindset of, regardless of melt up and the kind of shorter term dynamics of market behavior. Um, yeah, there's going to be an extinction event where there's some survivorship bias that kicks into the averages you know, as those companies go under. But it's interesting, though, right, because a lot of the layoffs that you've seen in the headlines are from large cap tech primarily companies. Um, a lot of labor is suddenly coming back in. Um, and the, even the destruction that's going on in the crypto space, you know, there's going to be a lot of labor that's going to need to get back to work, right? Because crypto is probably not going to come back as quickly as as enthusiasts would hope. So you have this really interesting dynamic where what's been one of the the, the, the major pain points for small companies? They can't find talent, right? Or uh, they can't afford the talent when they find it. Well, now, oddly enough, you actually potentially got a whole bunch of new labor to push down wage prices to maybe keep small caps somewhat profitable. Right, I'm just trying to think a little bit differently in terms of how this this could end up shaping out. So, um, a multi-year cycle that favors things outside of large caps seems to me very possible. Selfishly, I want to see that because it makes risk-on rotations in my world with my funds certainly less problematic from a whipsaw perspective. Um, but yeah, I mean, people forget that everything has cycles and. Market capitalization, large cap, is no different than everything else. It has cycles. All right. The question is, is that cycle over? Are the dynamics different? My argument would be yes, because you don't have zero interest rate policy anymore. So like one of the kind of hypotheses that's in the back of my head is that we're in an environment where it's going to be capital preservation is going to be tough. Right. We've been in an environment where you, you threw some money in a market and it, it doubled in, te- you know, pretty easily in five years or so. If you pick tech or if you pick the right sector, uh, private equity, whatever. I suspect we're in an environment where you'll be doing great if you manage to keep your capital in one piece. 
Um, I, I, that's why I'm kind of sympathetic to this view that you're you're kind of highlighting. Um, we've seen, as you said, we've seen these layoffs in tech. The reason we're seeing layoffs in tech is they had free capital. The capital that went to tech was in was was no price, and they were paid to expand for the previous ten years. Most people can learn a lesson if you repeat it for ten years, and that includes relatively smart guys like Mr. Zuckerberg or, or Mr. Bezos. Mr. Bezos is clearly super smart because he actually left his business. So he left at the top, cashed out, re-diversified diversified that portfolio. The man's a genius. I wouldn't be surprised if Amazon goes bust and he walks away with, you know, $1 trillion. So, by the way, that wasn't a serious statement, but I think Amazon is going to go bust, right? Just no one knows what tomorrow No is. one knows. And, uh, right. That, Unlikely. Well, the thing, is, the thing is, I just saw some data this week that said that the distribution business is a distribution business, right? Huge amounts of capital employed, really small margins. And the AWS is a huge cash cow making a load of money and growing really quickly. But that might change. So I only mention that because, you know, you're right. If you have zero cost capital, you're being paid to expand. Don't be surprised when they do expand. Don't be surprised when they overexpand. So for what little that's worth. Um, with the EM stuff, now, you know, you're, you're right in a backyard that I play in all the time. And I, I've gotten my face slapped buying RG debt too soon. Right. I believe me, you don't want to, you don't want to have my portfolio in Argentina, although I'm still optimistic on it. But one, one of the questions is why has it performed? Okay. What, what's got, what, you know, cause this was a tough environment in all sorts of ways. It did get cheap. Um, and then after getting cheap, it stopped getting cheap and it's actually starting to rally now. So why is that? It's not exactly a CFA, uh, quality response, but maybe the, the simplest answer is the right one, which is, grit and i know that sounds really odd i mean i wonder this myself but emerging economies like are used to this kind of stuff right they're used to having rates spiking they're used to crises they're probably just better at it at least this time around maybe because they're they're numb to it to some extent right i, I don't know i mean it, it's it's an odd argument but i don't think it's that's that impossible whereas you know, it's more of a shock to the UK to go through an emerging market crisis than an emerging market going through an emerging market crisis. Um, so maybe there's an element of that. I do also think that you obviously have to distinguish between what kind of emerging markets, right? So the BRICs are no longer the BRICs because you don't have Russia there. And China, depending upon who you ask, is either uninvestable or investable. So the real beneficiaries end up probably being Brazil and in particular India, right, in that. Um, where there's a lot of population growth and there's a lot of hunger to uh, have a better life independent of inflation. Um, and by the way, it's important to know that you know Brazil got way ahead of the Fed in raising the CELIC rate, right? And I believe India also was way ahead of the Fed and inflation is not as bad there. So that I use that, that response grit kind of tongue-in-cheek, but I do think there is an element of they're just better prepared for it because they've been through these kind of cycles many, many times before. Yeah, I think there's just, there was less speculation in some of these markets. Maybe India, that might not be true even. Um, but Brazil, definitely, there was less spec in that market and for a bunch of good reasons. Um, and I've got another slightly wackier hypothesis, but you know, w why would you come to this podcast apart from to hear wacky hypotheses? Um, and that's, uh, some of it is because of Russia. 
Some of it is because now China is is a is a, an outlier in this. Chinese, Chinese stocks have been a disaster, um, and I one of the best trades I've done is not buying uh, Alibaba. I have not bought Alibaba on a number of occasions when I was kind of about to click buy and went, nah, maybe not. And the the reason why is I keep on reading U.S. foreign policy publications, which are telling me there's this massive competition between the U.S. and China, and the U.S. U.S. is going to play the game robustly or something along that phrases like that um and when i see that it just makes me think oh god they're going to ban me owning chinese stocks at some point i better no i better not buy this thing so that's what happened in the case of china in the case of russia though it's kind of really inter- interesting phenomena we have been trying to block russian hydrocarbons russian steel russian exports in general We're trying to block russia from accessing global markets well, you know what the side effect of the, and, and, and we've succeeded to some degree, but the side effect of that is if you can buy Russian oil, you get a $30 discount on it. Guess who's been buying Russian oil? Yes, I'm looking at you, India. <laughs> That's right. I know Mexican guys who were trying to purchase Russian diesel with $30 discounts to trying to purchase it. Um, and make, if you did that one trade, if you're a young kid and you managed to persuade the Russians to sell you a, a boatload of diesel, you're a rich kid immediately. So these are tailwinds for countries that are able to trade with Russia. There are lots of commodities and things that Russia produces are now much cheaper for them. For what little that's worth. Yeah, no, I, I think that's actually really interesting. I don't think it's that wacky at all. I mean, you know, if you can benefit from cheaper commodities because nobody else will buy commodities from Russia, um, never mind principle and whether it's morally right or wrong, you know, at the end of the day, governments have to look out for their citizens, right? I mean, that's just the... The reality, where they you know, and they, they they tend to look out for their billionaire citizens quite quite carefully. I've noticed. Right. Same in the US. By the way. <laughs> so that's a constant, I think, yeah. across the board. Whoever owns an oil refinery in India has definitely got the ear of the Indian government. I I, I can tell. I can tell. So. Um, does that mean that the worst is? I mean, the other thing that happened to the BRICS, excluding Russia, but actually including Russia is dollar financing got tight. And when dollar financing got tight, these assets got cheap. And these assets are now phenomenally cheap. So I, I watched the Argentinian assets trade down, down, down. And then they hit this level where it got hard to sell them because you're shorting something which involves, I don't know, 16% running yields, which means you're paying 16% to be short of the thing. That can put people off, you know? And like if Argentina's going to default, they should get ahead, get on with it. But they're not going to default anytime soon because that debt doesn't have any servicing costs. They got a really cheap deal, and I think that's true across the board for the equities. All this stuff looks is is so cheap that it's discouraging additional short selling. Nobody's in it. It's under position. That's the tailwind for it. And the only question is whether that can continue. Yeah, no, I I, I think I think that's all that is valid, and it's also just keep in mind it's like. It's been massively underinvested. I mean, look, I get all the arguments around China in particular, right? It, that it's uninvestable, but like, there's got to be a price for stocks in China. I mean, and, and the thing is, you know, all the all the narratives and reasons to avoid China and to avoid emerging markets. I promise everybody that's watching this, it all goes away the moment you have momentum. It's like FOMO ends up being the ultimate fundamental analysis. Yep that that will suck me in very quickly. I could I can assure you. You know, and, th- and that's the thing, you haven't really had 
persistent momentum for a long time. In emerging, if you look at a chart on emerging markets, even beyond this year, you know, you talk about it's like volatile cash, just going nowhere with big swings. I mean, okay, maybe that does continue. Fine, maybe maybe it's forever going to be like that. But it's like, again, it's like at some point, the thing about I go back to what I said before. The thing about cycles changes. You don't know if you're in a new one until two to three years after it's already changed. Well, there's another aspect to that too, which is that every single day that goes by, you're closer to a cycle change. Now, this has already been well over a decade, right? Where EM has just completely been terrible. And listen, a lot of the I've been as wrong as everybody else, you know, making the case that emerging markets maybe are about to have some kind of move. I mean, I would argue that you were close to a secular change favoring emerging markets in 2017, and the trade war short-circuited all that. I mean, that's when emerging markets were broadly breaking out. Um, but they'll have a moment there. And, you know, markets are very good at at surprising people. The surprise would be that large-cap tech keeps meandering. People think that the bear market is going to last forever because they're still playing the old leaders as new leaders, pun intended, do emerge, right? And smaller, you know, I've used that line before, as the generals fall, the soldiers rise, right? Which is small cap our performance. So, um, look, I think the key thing for anybody and everybody here is despite the horrendous pain that this year has been, as is always the case, there's always opportunities. And the question really does become if this anomaly has resulted in new secular shifts. I happen to think that they have. I selfishly want to see that because, again, the worst environment in the world is the one where it's only about the S&P. Um, but also we'll see. Look, you, I've made this point made before. You still need to have real risk off. You still need to have an environment where treasuries from a from a cycle perspective act as the counter assets. Maybe that has to resolve itself first before a real comfortable long allocation You know, from a multi-year perspective in small caps and, and emerging markets. The idea that you have that final washout which hopefully treasuries would counter this time around. Um, that's why I said sequence and path is what is going to ultimately matter the most here. Um, the point is investors should at least keep an open mind, right? That what happens going forward could look very, very different than what we've seen the last decade plus. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So, uh, there are two points I wanted to raise with you. One, it seems to me that for the, the thesis to do small caps and EM, which is kind of a deep value thesis, right? A deep value thesis, that's right. And I like deep value thesis, but you need to be patient and you normally need the Fed to be on your side. The Fed needs to pivot because it will work, but you need the catalyst. When does the Fed pivot? When it's too late. <laughs> I mean, that's what history is. You know, it's so funny about this. You know, people keep talking about a Fed. You know, Fed pivots are bearish. I mean, historically, the Fed has pivoted. Markets went down hard because why are they pivoting? Because something broke. Something's bad. It's like the the joke of this. It's like higher rates are actually supposed to be a good thing because it's a sign of strength. Somehow people forgot that. And by the way, that that goes back to what I said about 2013. So it used to be the case prior to QE3. I've written about this before. That If you were to overlay the S&P against inflation expectations, it's a one-for-one relationship, meaning inflation expectations rise, rising rates, good for equities. Inflation expectations fall, uh, equities fall, disinflation, right, which is – 
risk on is inflationary, risk off is deflationary, disinflationary, right? QE3 comes around and you can see a very clear structural break where the S&P diverged from inflation expectations. Suddenly, low rates were perceived as positive, right? Which is not historically the case because rates are not just a reflection of supply, but of demand for money, right? So that's what I'm saying. This is like really interesting. A lot of people, I think, have been lulled into the narrative of the last decade, which actually is not the way historically uh, it tends to work out in terms of the market's perception around what higher rates actually means for a better environment, right? So the pivot will will happen at some point, probably when it's too late. Now, listen, if if this, on the off chance that this crypto breakdown results in a deflationary event, because I always go back to this idea that inflation is a process, deflation is an event, right? If If somehow there's spillover with a lag, like what happened in 08, right? Lehman Brothers happened, and then it wasn't until a week or two after Lehman filed for bankruptcy that stocks really collapsed. That was an event. If you have an event, the Fed's going to pivot this year. And I know we're in November, right? But that's because they're trying to then respond to a contagion. Now, it's not my base case, but you have to always consider the possibility that a margin call in one part of the marketplace is never just isolated to just one part of the marketplace, it's not my base case, right? But you have to at least consider the possibility that the pivot may end up coming sooner than people think and for all the wrong reasons. Now, there was something I was, you know, I, I do my minimum due diligence, um, seldom more than that, but I definitely do the minimum due diligence. And I was looking at some interviews you had done in the past, and you had this phrase, no gurus, only cycles. And... uh I wanted to explore that a little bit because I think you're absolutely right, but I think it's I think it's worth talking about why you're right. Yeah, I, I, and I also joke few understand this, which is me somewhat poking fun at the Bitcoin maxis who used to use that line nonstop. I don't believe anybody knows anything that other people don't know. Right? It's people on Twitter seem to think that I, that's me being uh, arrogant. That's me actually poking fun at arrogance. Um, which few apparently do understand. But that whole line, there are no gurus, only cycles. Look, I, I I really loathe the glorification of the guru of the moment. And it's not necessarily the guru of the moment's fault. It's the media putting them on a pedestal. In reality, it's all cycles. And somebody who happens to be loud where the cycle comes in their favor and the media doesn't gravitate towards that. The problem that I have with this this sort of love of gurus is that it makes people think that here's this person, this individual, who can see the future. Nobody can see the future. I can't either. Right? That's why I always frame things in terms of conditions. The, the, the best forecasters in the world are weathermen, and yet they always get vilified for getting the weather wrong, even though they've been proven to be the best in their domain at predicting the future because they identify the conditions under which the future can play out. The constant desire to find the guru of the moment is damaging because – if it's all about cycles and cycles change, well, then people still hang on to every single word of that guru from the last cycle, and that's where they get into trouble, right? So it's it's me sort of pushing back against narratives uh, that any single person can forever be at the top of their game in this business, which is not in their control because cycles are nobody's control. Um, you just have to be there for it. 
It's exactly so. I mean, I think there are people who are quite good at predicting the future. I, I'm not bad at it myself. I'm just not good enough trader to make a lot of money out of doing that. Uh, when I try and make money out of predicting the future, that's when I lose a lot. Uh, because on the way, you know, Apple on the way up to being what it is today went through a near bankruptcy event. You, I know friends who bought stock then. I know other friends who sold it. Um, I remember looking at Amazon in 1995, actually, maybe it's 97 or so, when it was early in the process. And in fact, I had friends who had gone from D. Shaw to join Mr. Bezos. And I looked at this and I was buying stuff on Amazon myself. I was buying, buying MP3s. Um, back before most people were getting these things. I was using the Sony platform, by the way. Shows you what I know. And the point being, it's obvious that this was the future and people would do these, you know, do more and more of their business on this. It didn't mean I bought Amazon stock. <laughs> it just meant that I knew which way the wind was blowing. I, I was an Amazon customer back in 1997, 98, you know, as a kid, right? And I was trading back then and I didn't even touch Amazon stock, even though it was, you know, probably right. one of the customers through our time. So I'm with you on that. Uh, the, the future, um, the future is already here. It's just not widely, dis not, not evenly distributed. It's some, some phrase by a sci-fi writer. And uh, I think that's absolutely right. You can predict the future. It doesn't make, doesn't necessarily make you a penny. You'd have to have a bunch of other things going on for you, including risk tolerance, appropriate sizing, appropriate instrument. Because, you know, Amazon bonds wouldn't have been as good a trade as Amazon stock. You know, there's all sorts of things going on there. So that's it. And the other thing is the selection bias. If you pick the right moment, you pick the right, you talk to me at the right moment, and I will say something that will sound like genius. You talk to me six weeks, you know, a, a two days later, my wife will give you 50 examples of me being a complete imbecile. Selection bias is all about picking that moment saying, oh my God, Kathy Wood, woman's a genius. Like, Jesus. Kathy Wood's doing what Kathy Wood's doing. Sometimes that really works well. Other times, not so much. So that happened. And I'd say the longer I've been in the business, the less I know, and the few things I know, I know pretty good, which is that most cycles don't last longer than eight years. After eight years, you are overstaying your welcome. That does not mean you short the cycle. That means you should consider that it might come to an end sometime in the next two years. It's possible, right? Stuff happens. You, you, just, made my, you just made my whole argument around the end of large-cap dominance. Exactly. Which It's been outperforming for so long. And I know why it's been outperforming. It's been outperforming because it has way better access to capital than, than small caps. So this, the assets have become expensive. And you have this reflexive Sorosian uh, is it Soros-like argument where people the, the good performance attracts more capital, attracts more capital, like it creates more good performance, and then it unwinds, and uh, it could be, it could be ugly. Uh, I don't know if that means it's good for small caps. I suspect it probably is because small caps are probably cheap, but you get that timing wrong by a little bit, it could cost you a lot of money. So it's just just the observation. Yeah, no, I agree. And you know, it's money has to flow somewhere. I guess is is sort of the the point. So that's why I'm saying it's. It's a relative argument, uh, largely. What are you thinking about house prices in the U.S.? And I know it will seem like counterintuitive, but I think there is a reason why we should talk about it. Well, I mean, so I, I, my Twitter profile has lumber and gold eyes because lumber is the talent housing starts, right, and is a leading indicator from that perspective. Housing is really um, also nuanced because, yes, mortgage rates are higher, so that should break housing prices. That will break housing prices. But against that backdrop, you still have very tight inventory. And you don't have home builders now having any incentive to actually build. 
So you might have a weird almost steady state where you have a collapse in buyers and a collapse in sellers against already low inventory. So it doesn't look like uh, housing prices are actually moving down in a major, major way because there aren't any real transactions for true price discovery. Right. So this, it's, I think it's actually going to be very um, interesting how housing plays out. But look, if you're going to break inflation, you have to break housing. You have to break owner's equivalent rent. So it kind of makes sense, right, that there should be downward pressure on home values. The question is how quickly that takes place against inventory, which is just not there. The Fed is the, the proverbial guy who has a hammer. Um, if you have a hammer, everything will look a bit like a nail. It's 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 inevitable. Um, the one so my concern about I I totally see your point. I totally see this thing where if you have seven percent mortgage rates, nobody's going to move. If you if you're going to convert that your big house into a small house and borrow money, why are you going to bother? Because you're going to pay the same. It's not going to happen. So that lack of mobility is going to cause side effects in the U.S. labor market. It's going to cause serious and unpleasant side effects. And I, I think if the Fed left rates here for two years, you would definitely see something approximating a 15 to 20% decline in U.S. real estate prices. They would bleed down. Even though you don't have a lot of sellers, you won't have many buyers either. The asset price is just too high. Um, at the end of that period, um, you're going to have – huge demand for accommodation which is not going to be satisfied so and I, I just don't know how long rates will have to be at this level um i have a suspicion it's a little longer than bond markets and most people think yeah i don't i don't disagree i don't disagree. i think i think this is going to be a long process hopefully it will not be as painful because hopefully as the process drags on Treasuries act as a safe haven again, at least giving people an opportunity to hide in something instead of always being afraid of losing no matter where you go. I've I've got to tell you, I've started to buy long dated tips, but um, for my own account, and I wouldn't recommend that to everybody. These things fly about like crazy. Um, but uh, I'm building up that position because I'm an old man, and uh, this is like creating your own annuity, if you if you will. So. I, Anywho, it's been great speaking. Um, if people want to kind of see more of your reasoning, logic, and ideas, how do they how do they find you? Yeah, I mean, the primary way is through at Lee Lagerport, which is my handle on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all that stuff. And then, yeah, I do these Twitter spaces pretty much every single day, my own podcast, in order to Lead Lag Live. Um, always interesting to go from being interviewed to interviewer, uh, as I'm sure you know. Uh, but, uh, yeah, a lot of, a lot of different places people can reach out to me. And, you know, uh, again, I always use this line as a good way to wrap up the conversation. Again, going back to the point that this year has been hellish and anomaly in the direction of stocks treasuries, which is why my funds have gotten so hit. Amateurs look to the right of the equal sign. Pros look to the left. So I would encourage everybody to not look at the small sample of this year, which has been unequivocally bizarre. And always look to one's process, not necessarily to their outcome, because sometimes, oftentimes, the outcome is not fully in one's control in a small sample. No, absolutely. I, I love that point. Um, a process that works will get you where you need to go. A bet on, uh, on you know, eventually, just a matter of time, if the process really does work. Um, a bet, yeah, depends which way the coin lies.
Exactly. Anyway, so thank you so much, Michael. We must do it again sometime. No, thank you. Appreciate uh, all the uh, time Real Vision spends on putting these kind of things together. So thank you, guys. All right, that's a wrap on the next big trade. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, head over to realvision.com for financial insight you won't find anywhere else. 